to identify oneself as an African-American woman, to identify oneself as um, a person of a privileged class, um, is not the end of politics. Right? It is a necessary step, though, for our students in um, then connecting into a really complicated political matrix. That's Martha Jones, the Society of Black Alumni Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University and formerly a professor at the University of Michigan. Jones brings some of her experience, especially at that latter institution, to bear on our topic today, politics on college campuses. We're lucky she does. There's been a lot of talk about campus politics on both the left and the right. On the right, we often hear about so-called liberal snowflakes who can't bear to hear arguments they don't agree with, so they attempt to banish conservative speakers especially from their campuses and threaten to undermine the principle, the right of freedom of expression, so that argument goes. And on the center left, we hear from some critics that identity politics is the problem, that students are so obsessed with the dynamics of personal identity that they are thus somehow incapable of or uninterested in the hard work of coalition building, of sustained organizing, especially on the left. This latter position was stated pretty succinctly by the liberal critic Mark Leela recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education in an article titled How Colleges Are Strangling Liberalism. Martha Jones and I referenced that piece because it does sum up the critique from the center-left quite well, and it relates to Leela's widely discussed and debated piece in the New York Times, The End of Identity Liberalism, which relates very closely to our topic today. We also address the future of free expression on campus, where Jones thinks that debate is headed and how, in the wake of Charlottesville, it's entered the mainstream. But we begin our conversation by addressing a question often raised about students and their politics, whether they are focused somehow too much on campuses, on their own problems, and therefore lack a certain understanding of or interest in the outside world. It's a tough question, and I wonder if it paints a picture of students that's at all fair. Jones responds, You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. I think the first thing is, I don't think we should be surprised uh, that so much of the political sorts of work and engagement that students have um, are specific to campus um, specific to their local world and their everyday experience. I think a lot of us would say that about our political lives, um, that we begin by looking at our, our city council or our community um, or neighborhood association is one sort of starting place for political culture. So I think I would reframe student politics um, by reminding us that there's nothing particularly unusual, aberrant, or anti-democratic, in fact, with the notion that students are first and foremost come to politics by way of what's happening around them in their, mm -hmm. in their real lives. Um, and that means, in some sense, that their politics might look very different than the politics, uh, my own politics, someone who lives off and away from campus and occupies a different sort of world, or someone who lives on in Morningside Heights in Manhattan. Um, it might look different than it does to someone whose first blush with politics is about that kind of local that is campus. So that piece, I think, doesn't surprise me or concern me. I think the second piece is... I expect 
college university life to be um, the opportunity for experimentation, for approximation, um, for trying on politics for many of our students for the very first time. Um, and um, this past election cycle is no exception. We all know about the ways in which our 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old students um, talked about this as their first presidential election and experienced it in that way. And again, I think that um, that gives them a particular vantage point. It's not mine. Um, somebody has been voting for president since uh, 1976. But it is um, one, in fact, that I think we expect colleges and universities to create for them is a first blush pass at what it means to be a member of the body politic and to join that. What does that mean? Um, to me, it means we expect them to be um, not as experienced or sophisticated or to share the perspectives of those of us who have had long lives in the body politic. But we recognize that as part of the long dynamic of becoming a citizen, um, becoming an engaged citizen. Um, our first passes at that, I think, are not the same as the passes or the perspectives of elders. So I, I guess I'm wondering how you would characterize some of the fundamental issues or questions that students today seem to be putting to politics. And if you could just describe those and your sense of them, especially around election 2016. So one of the big questions that we know emerges out of election 2016 is what is the, what is the makeup? What is the fabric? Um, what is going to be the future of the American body politic? We recognize that uh, when we think about issues such as voting rights and we ask who's in and who's out, um, whether it's through um, uh, the imposition of ID laws or it's felon disfranchisement, we have a live and important and complicated national conversation that is ongoing about who is a member, and who is going to participate in the body politic. And that's what I heard my students asking right, in the 2016 election and in its wake. Um, who is in? Who is out? How do we determine who makes up the body politic? Who gets to participate in democracy? Um, and while they had their own takes on that, I see that as a question that is a major one for all of us in 2017 and beyond. Another question they asked and they have asked is about the very um, important question of freedom of expression, mm -hmm. freedom of assembly, who speaks, under what conditions and what terms. Um, well, that is not a question that is unique to students on university campuses. Uh, that is a question that we recognize um, has high stakes um, and has, uh, is playing out in real time. Uh, for all of us as a community, and students have their own take on that and their own experiences of it. But when I listen to them, I hear in these two examples and in many others, I hear them asking the questions of the day, um, mm. even as they ask them from their own points of view. So I'd like to come back to this question of expression on college campuses and, and the particular position that you you found students taking on that issue because of course it's something that's talked about all the time and and Mark Leela himself points out that it's something that's sort of adjudicated on say Fox News. I, I think this 
This actually is a way into a hot button phrase that Leela brings up and of course gets brought up all the time in conversations about campus politics, which is identity politics. One concern that, that, that a number of critics have about campus politics is that it's defined by identity politics. And I think usually the way this term identity politics gets talked about is, is in the following manner. Um, students, as Leela and others have argued, become more deeply interested in the dynamics of their own personal identities, of the dynamics of gender and race. And this somehow, in the view of critics, comes at the expense of a kind of politics, particularly on the left, that would identify broad-based coalitions and that would help, say, the Democrats actually win elections. So I'm wondering, I, I, think, I think we saw this critique of, of campus politics at play in Leela's article, and I'm wondering if I could just get your take on it and whether you think that identity politics is an accurate term or a good term if it's described correctly by Leela and others whether it does dominate campus politics, and whether that's a good or bad thing. I think what Leela and others are picking up on, and what perhaps is new in a relative sense for them, is a probably an unprecedented capacity of our students to articulate their understandings of the world and how it works through those kinds of ascriptions that we sometimes term identity. What I think is missing from the conversation is that when I listen to my students, when I engage them, what I hear is something interesting and I think sophisticated about identity, which Mm. is to say, on the one hand, they are aware of themselves as the cliche, you know, the the left-handed oboe player um, from a rural community in the Midwest, right? That mm-hmm. sort of identity um, that is sort of how do I how do I explain who I am in an inner self inner inner self sense. They are um, not the generation that has invented the kind of then social categories that they have to navigate. Right. That is as old as the nation itself. And if we go back to, I don't know, a 1790 census or immigration and naturalization acts of the same era, um, the kinds of social categories, even as they transform over the t- over time, are not new. And our students are profoundly aware of the power and the meaning of social categories, and they will talk to you about them. But the important piece, I think, that Leela misses is that even with all that, I see or hear or engage with students who very much are thinking about the um, political identities that they inhabit. And their political identities are not, in fact, bound either by the inner self or the kind of sociological matrix in which they exist. I hear them really um, using their own experiences as a way of um, connecting um, to this kind of fractured matrix that they've stepped into rather than using it as an end place for their political vision. I see students who are interested in what some scholars have called you know, anti-subordination and to identify oneself as an African-American woman, to identify oneself as 
um, a person of a privileged class um, is not the end of politics. Right? It is a necessary step, though, for yeah. our students in um, then connecting into a really complicated political matrix. I just don't see it as the end point. Um, even as I understand, hearing those articulations may be jarring and become the end point for a listener who isn't accustomed to hearing identity articulated in such robust and nuanced terms. So I think the problem is with the listener and not with the and not with the speaker. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, so that's uh, that's that's very interesting. I'm hoping we can talk about this point that you just made about the issue being with the listener and 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 it being incumbent on the listener to respond positively and constructively to this. I'll just offer for for listeners a quotation from Leela's article that it seems to be you're responding to, and I'll just ask for. Um, uh, a response directly to it. So Leela, I think, summarizes here a widely held view. So, quote, The more obsessed with personal identity campus liberals become, the less willing they are to engage in reasoned political debate. Over the past decade, a new and very revealing locution has drifted from our universities into the media mainstream. This locution Leela describes here is, quote, Speaking as an ex. So Leela writes about this phrase, speaking as an ex. This is not an anodyne phrase. It tells the listener that I am speaking from a privileged position on this matter. It sets up a wall against questions which by definition come from a non-X perspective, and it turns the encounter into a power relation. The winner of the argument will be whoever has invoked the morally superior identity and expressed the most outraged at being questioned. End of quotation. So this, again, I think is a common view of the nature of campus political debates and most importantly, how they are won. Uh, I guess I'm wondering whether you think there's any truth in the last formulation that Leela presents, which is that political debates on college campuses or generally in the paradigm of identity politics are won merely by establishing yourself as somehow the most oppressed category. This is certainly the uh, the characterization made by by people on the right. I'm wondering if you think that's a fair characterization at all, and if not, what does it get wrong? Well, I certainly don't think it's fair in that I think it's naive, which is to say, A, even on campuses, I don't think um, politics are won by way of sound bites, which is what I think is fueling this observation. Mm. The politics on campus are one through, yes, through rhetoric and um, the podium, but they are ultimately, I think, one by way of relationships and sustained organizing and the nitty-gritty work of what it means to be part of a community and to move that community politically um, as you see fit. And in my experience, while I really take issue with the, um, I'm going to leave aside how problematic it is to characterize students' articulations of identity as somehow morally superior in power plays. I'm going to leave that aside. What I want to say is that the politics and the change that happens on our campuses happens by way of the sorts of 
really grounded deliberations that mm. I think that observation just doesn't take into account. I can only speak um, out of my own campus, um, but I know that if we pointed to any um, significant transformation that has come out of student activism in the last decade or two, it is um, change that has come out perhaps initiated, right, at the podium, initiated with the manifesto. But the change comes um, by the service on the committee, right, by the student org over the course of, you know, four generations of leadership. It's those sustained conversations, those sustained engagements that makes change. And at least on my campus, I can say that students um, do sustain that. And to do that work, they are required to talk to many people um, mm. who aren't, you know, in Leela's sort of framing, like them. Um, and here's the thing. Oftentimes, what students tell us, the issues they put on the table, um, turn out to be our issues also, turn out to be our questions as faculty and as administrators. On my campus at the University of Michigan, well, no one is not familiar with the long struggles over student diversity on the campus. Um, those struggles initiated by, sustained by students, but those are our concerns as faculty. Um, and so we come to the table, right? We come to those conversations also. Um, I guess I could parody our own identities, right, in that moment, you know, and our identities are are odd and, um, and you know, peculiar um, when we come to those tables, but we come, and so do our deans and our presidents and our provosts, because students are putting real questions on the table, even as they enter um, from their own um, initial experiences of those questions. So it seems to me like one of the things you're suggesting is that rather than the particular kinds of political discussion and debate that happen on college campuses, rather than that being um, a way for students to be self-obsessed, again, this is the caricature of them. Instead, it's a cause really for broad-based sort of coalition building and group uh, communal deliberation. I, I just bring this up because it the, the, the image of students as being self-obsessed or self-involved seems to be so rampant and so endemic and difficult to eradicate from the conversation. I mean, I was just lo looking through uh, the comment section to your own article, um, mm -hmm. and it seems like this view of students came up as well. So one commenter, I think it might have been among the first ones, um, writes this about students. Quote, students desire a Bernie rally with a music festival vibe. But the best on offer is compromises no one is happy with in an election where no one is attractive and no one shares their own personal interests. The question this commenter asks is, will they show up and play their part in a process that doesn't affirm them? Now, <laughs> that's end quote. Now, of course, we can have a debate about whether the positions of Sanders are practicable, and we can certainly have a debate about whether they're desirable. But one question I was struck by as I was reading that is how... One could really argue that supporting Bernie Sanders, someone who is clearly a populist and whose positions are politically egalitarian, how that is supposed to indicate that millennials are somehow self-obsessed or that students on campuses are only concerned with themselves and their own identities. And it just struck me that if you, if you couldn't convince 
an older generation say that students aren't self-obsessed by sh- by pointing to the fact that many of them did vote for Bernie Sanders, then you really couldn't prove it ever. So I guess I'm wondering, why do you think such arguments about the supposed self-obsession of undergraduate students, uh, why do you think they have such power and why do you think they persist? <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> I, I mean, in some ways, right? I, I mean, others have written and I, I think there's something to it that this is the... Um, perhaps um, inevitable um, expression of the tension between generations, you know, and this is, this is sort of, we needed, we needed something to, I think, frankly, um, to excise. Now I'm speaking as someone who was born in the 1950s, right? How, how do I, how will I confront my own disappointments about what my generation didn't accomplish. How am I grappling with the extraordinary promise that greeted a generation like mine, you know, whether it was the spirit of 68 or the boomers, um, that we came into the world um, thinking that we were going to transform it into um, a better place, its best place. And now we're of an age where I think we grapple with and we have to take stock of what we accomplished, what we didn't, and what we are leaving now to people who are, um, in my case, are my students. And um, that is a heavy um, reflection, I think, for a generation. And it's too easy. I think, um, to blame uh, what ails us in this historical moment on young people Mm. who have just arrived on the scene. And you've described them. um, There was nothing about 2016 that suggested that my students weren't um, engaged in the many senses of that term with the political process and the contest and contests that were playing out in that season. and yet um, they were new to it and I was not. Um, and while they were, many of them, deeply unnerved by the results in 2016, um, if you're someone who's been going to the polls since the 1970s, disappointment doesn't even begin to describe it. So I think in some ways it is um, our own anxiety about the way in which we are going to leave the world to this generation. And we are anxious that they might not be up to it because it turns out the challenges of democracy might be even more profound in 2017 than they were in 2016 than they were in, in 76 when I first voted, right? That democracy seems even more fragile, right? Even more at risk. Um, and um, boy, we should be anxious about whether or not they're up to it. But I don't think that means you then leap um, to critique them um, uh, and worse, right, and to dismiss them. Um, I think um, it's a moment to, frankly, not only turn out to your classroom, but to turn out to the student organization meeting and to their rallies um, and to their debates and to the teach-ins and be there with them um, to speak to them um, but also to listen to them and to be of good counsel to them um, because the challenges they face are formidable. So you, you, 
you point out that uh, uh, many students, uh, this is true, I mean, this is true for plenty of people. I know it's in many ways true for me is that they, they came alive politically very recently, say in the Obama years and in, in election 2016. You point out, of course, that you've been on campuses for a number of years and you've seen a number of different kinds of elections and you've seen um, American politics change and evolve and in some ways assumedly stay the same. What do you think students were surprised by, flummoxed by, concerned with? What mistakes do you think that they made that they'll have to learn from? What victories do you think that they had on campus in America around 2016 that, that you could possibly talk about? They learned that democracy is tough business. Democracy is tough. And democracy leaves open the possibility for not only the result that you um, opposed, right, but the result that you most feared. Um, that democracy is not an easy um, way Right? to organize the world and to deliberate and to make decisions and to choose leadership. And um, that's not a unique lesson for them, I don't think, in 2016. Um, but uh, many, many of my conversations with students in um, that election season and certainly subsequent um, to the election were about our commitment to democracy, our vision of democracy and how it works, the risks of democracy, um, how democracy is um, the sort of project that requires us to do the quotidian sustained work of self-governance day in and day out and not simply in, you know, the um, the excitement of um, a presidential season, uh, election season. Um, but we talked about democracy and what it is and how it works and what our part is in it. Um, and I don't see my students um, turning inward in the wake of what for many of them was a disappointment um, in 2016. I see them reengaging and again, rethinking, what is democracy? What is my role? How do I influence this when I'm on the inside, when I'm on the outside, um, when my questions are um, on the margins, when they come to the center? Um, this is not a question, again, as I said at the outset, that's unique to them. Um, they are grappling with what we're all grappling with. Is, right? what, what do we think of a democracy when, for some of us, um, it seems to have gone terribly awry. So I, I'm, I'm thinking as well, and I'd like to come back to the, a, a point that you raised earlier, which is what are some of the things that, that, that professors and students have to deliberate, uh, talk about, um, debate over together, especially on campuses. Uh, and I'm also struck by you're pointing out that you sort of came of age politically in the 70s and you're looking at students coming of age politically today and some of the different positions perhaps that camp the campus left say in the 60s and 70s would have taken from positions that the campus left or just students broadly today take uh, one issue that comes up again and again in conversations about campuses is freedom of speech and expression and you brought this up in your article uh, as a question uh, that students and administrators and faculty have to 
deliberate over. I think the phrase you use is um, how should, or the question you put is how should freedom of expression operate in the face of hateful acts that threaten another of our ideals, the dignity of all community members. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what answer to that question do you think students are proposing and what answer do you think faculty are proposing? Mm. The University of Michigan, where I taught for many years, um, it was our campus that became the uh, test case. University of Michigan versus Doe was the test case around what were hate speech codes at the end of the 20th century. And our um, code, which aimed to squelch hate speech, was deemed unconstitutional. Um, so this is a long-standing question for us um, and an important one. Um, we go back to our, um, not only the Constitution, but our own um, code of conduct, um, which privileges um, both freedom of expression um, and the dignity of all members of our campus. And um, that's exactly um, where um, our um, where our conversation is fixed today. How do those, what is the relationship between those two values? Um, does one trump the other? Does one cede to the other? When does one um, become um, predominant and the other have to recede? Those are all the questions that we're asking. Um, and the truth is, Joe, that as faculty and administrators, we don't have an answer. Right? We don't have an answer that we are, I think, in the midst of a profound rethinking of those two sorts of values um, and how they will coexist, not only on campuses, but in many public settings. But campus has become um, the laboratory, is my point of raising the University of Michigan versus Doe case, right? Is campuses are oftentimes the laboratory for this. And what happens on campuses will have implications for the First Amendment rights of many Americans, so, some of uh, whom will never spend time, important time campus. That's, yeah. So, and I, I'm wondering, you, you, you used a phrase that was very interesting, that, that, that faculty and students all have to undergo a process of, of, of reconsidering or rethinking the ideals that you're describing, which is on the one hand, the ideal of free speech. On the other hand, the ideal or the, or the reality of the dignity of every person on a campus and then, um, of course, in the country. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering, uh, it's, it seems to be the, the conventional wisdom, or at least the post-60s wisdom of universities, um, the received wisdom that, that the ideal is freedom of speech and freedom of expression. This is the ultimate goal and purpose of campus life and debate, and every other ideal is subordinate to it. And the and I think a concern that that some critics of campuses today have is that in fact that that ideal is being in this reconsideration that you're describing is being replaced by another one, which mm -hmm. is which is the ideal of a certain definition of political progress. And I'm wondering whether you think that this reconsideration is actually issuing in or resulting in new campuses that don't take as their central ideal, their central goal, freedom of expression and debate. Right. Um, I would say anybody who thinks they know the, the answer to that isn't telling you. It, 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 
is not telling you the truth. Okay. Right? Okay. I don't sure. think we know, yeah. right? That yeah. we are going to watch campuses. I think Michigan State is among them. Um, suit was filed against Michigan State just in the last week um, for having declined um, a speaker, um, mm. declined the speaker for the content of the speaker's um, ideas. Um, this is exactly the sort of scenario that um, challenges the kind of ethos that you described. And we are going to watch that play out in real time. And we're going to watch universities and students and citizens and courts, um, civil liberties unions, um, all come in a new generation to this question and ask out loud um, the degree to which we think the First Amendment may compete with other sorts of values on our campus. And I don't think anyone knows the answer to this. Um, but I have some very um, wise and um, uh, brilliant colleagues um, uh, who are experts on this area. And they would tell you that the First Amendment has never been sacrosanct, right? It has always been um, a point of contestation. Um, it will withstand this contestation, um, but it may change, but it may change. And I don't think we yet know the answer to that, but I hear the sounds in the ways in which um, university administrators are couching their um, refusal to welcome some speakers, um, testing, right, trying and testing the limits of this doctrine. Um, students certainly have challenged this. Um, and so I think we're in for a full-on debate about this. Um, and it turns out that while this has implications for everyone, um, our campuses are going to be um, ground zero for this question. And this is all the more reason why um, I think rather than um, be dismissive of or to parody students' political um, ways of entering these conversations, it's time to understand them and to engage with them um, because they are going to be on the front lines of determining, I think, what the First Amendment means for the next generation and beyond. Do you have a, a sense of where you think campus politics and um, the question of freedom of expression on campuses, where you think this, yeah. this debate will lead? Yeah, I, I think I can tell you, I, I've been spending a lot of time talking to very interesting people. Um, I've done some advising for um, the ACLU on this question um, because they are on one front line of this question. On the other hand, I have law school colleagues who are, you know, some of the best um, of the First Amendment and the most committed right, of First Amendment um, scholars um, who are really changing their ideas, that they think in this moment the marketplace of ideas concept, right, which is part of what frames the university campus, right, all ideas, a thousand ideas, let them blossom, right. let them compete with one another. They think that the marketplace might be um, not a viable framework anymore for thinking about speech, um, partly um, because of the rise and the capacity of falsehood 
to to get so much traction and to carry so much weight. Um, they were really struggling, right, with what the marketplace is and how it might function today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's incredibly interesting to me. Um, and now I've watched three public institutions in the last weeks cancel or refuse seekers. Um, and I don't know what's going on in the council's office in those places, but you betcha that um, the general counsel is at the table and they are beginning to strategize. They have strategized about how they're going to defend this. Um, and that requires thinking not only about campus politics, but thinking about law and First Amendment doctrine. So all of these actors, right, are serious players in um, how the First Amendment um, is made and remade. And they are all actively rethinking. And I don't think that's a, you know, from my personal view, I don't think that's a bad thing. I right. think it's a good thing. Right. Um, I think it's been a long time coming, in fact. Um, but students will certainly um, make sure, right, that it doesn't fall off the agenda. <laughs> you can be sure, right? I mean, that it's not, it's not going to fall away. Um, whether it's students who are going to test us by um, provocatively proposing you know, people who are associated with hate speech or hate organizations um, or the students who are going to come out and try and shut those speakers down. Um, I think that fight is on. And the smart First Amendment professor, scholar, you know, the smart ACLU director, the smart general counsel at a university is already working on this and um, really thinking hard about what the new formulations might be. And um, whether and the degree to which they'll find a judiciary that's receptive, I don't know. Interesting, right? Lots of Obama, you know, there are lots of Obama, Bush, Clinton, even, you know, um, hangovers on the federal bench, um, even as we might think the Supreme Court um, is going to be of one, um, one mind. Yeah. Um, you know, and and then there's you know, and then there's Charlottesville, right? You know, which um, which which I think has brought a lot of people to this table um, who would have resisted it in the past, right? Charlottesville um, was evidence of how um, murky the space between uh, speech and the Speech Act um, and action and violence can be. Um, and I think many more people, um, today would probably say this is an important conversation. It's an important debate. That was Martha Jones, professor of history at Johns Hopkins. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges the leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, 
This has been Common Ground.